This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Hello, everyone. Hello, 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 hello. Uh, can you dig it, everyone? This is the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. I am your host, Sam LaCrosse. We are back for another week. I don't know if you guys can hear that annoying, like, I don't even know if it's like a, like a vibrating sound in the background. It is not anything, you know, heinous that you might think it would be. I don't know if you would with me, but that's fine. Um, it, it, um, it's, it's getting hot in Boston, and it's, you know, my apartment is, is very old. And um, I, I think I said last podcast, I am in the process of moving all my shit. So um, I was very fortunate enough because my dad is really awesome. He came out and he um, he got all of my shit and he, you know, we, well, we did. I didn't make him do it all, like, all himself, obviously. We got all of my big shit, moved it out of my apartment. So I'm living like pure fight club style, like off the <clears throat> basic essentials. Uh, no, no worldly possessions uh, to spare here in my apartment and you know thank god i still have the air conditioner that's running in the background which is i forgot how annoying the vibration was but since my apartment is so old and there's no central air and you know the windows keep falling open and every time you cook something it just it microwaves the whole fucking apartment it's it's literally awful how like how horribly hot this place is like i don't know how people this just shows how fucking spoiled we are because the people in here who are living with probably at one point, I think this place was built in like the 1940s or 50s, probably earlier, that were living in a one-bedroom apartment with, you know, themselves and probably three or four kids. I mean, it's absolutely fucking mind-blowing that that was even a thing. So, you know, it's, so my apologies if you can hear that, but I wanted to, um, so this is actually going to be my last podcast before I leave, and I wrote this podcast, or not this podcast, this this blog post, um, a couple weeks after moving here for um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I was dealing with a lot of things that were going on in my personal life. I had a pretty um, bad encounter with uh, my a former friend of mine, a former really good friend of mine who went to high school in the uh, same college as I did, and we had a pretty um, abrupt and sad, if I were to say so, end to our friendship. And, um, you know, his girlfriend was involved, and, you know, I had all this other shit going around with, like, you know, the anxiety of starting a new job and, you know, all the stuff with the COVID stuff because Boston was really locked down back then. And, you know, I didn't know anybody and I hadn't been to, you know, I hadn't met a lot of people here yet. And I had, you know, I, I just, I was feeling very, um, <clears throat> you know, uncertain about a lot of things that were going on in my own mental state. And I also kind of was thinking like, you know, 
I think every guy kind of feels like when they feel these things, like, oh, you should not feel these things because um, that inner masculine self kind of just wants to, to beat the tar out of the non-thing that kind of thinks these things. And I wanted to apply something that I think isn't really applied much now, which is the focus on the mental health of the male gender, because I think it's a very under-talked about topic, and it's sad because um, there's a lot of bad things that are happening in this space. And I, I, the last thing I wanted to do, right, was just provide a fluff post by how men need to hug people more and cry and all this other bullshit. I'm like, no, no, no. So, so I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to follow the trend of just like giving people bullshit advice, especially men that they know is just honestly bullshit and know that it's not going to work. So I ended up crafting this post kind of a combination of like what I was feeling. And I always want to try to make a broader trend out of if I can to make it applicable about people because this blog is not about me. It's just kind of what I feel and I think what a lot of people are feeling and trying to make an articulated argument out of it so we can make more sense of what's going on. So um, and I was at the end result, I was very, very proud of it. I, to the day, to this day, excuse me, it's one of my favorite posts that I've ever done. I look back on it actually more than I tend not to look at a lot of my posts after I've written them. I just kind of write them and throw them into the internet ether <laughs> as it were. And I think that going back to this post, it, you know, I've, I haven't read it in full in a very, very long time. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how it's evolved. My thinking has evolved, how the post itself has evolved in the current times. And, you know, mind you, this is in the height of Corona. This is end of, um, yes, June 28th, 2020. So it was a week after I started my new job. I, you know, kind of all this other stuff. So it was, you know, it was in the middle of a lot of really bizarre shit that was going on. So without further ado, I will start with a quote. I spent my whole life trying not to be careless. Women and children can be careless, but not men. End quote. The Godfather is perhaps the greatest piece of art of the 20th century, even though part two is the greatest film ever created, and that is not an opinion, by the way. That is a fact. It is proven in the fact of Sam Lacrosse, so it is a fact. Um, the Godfather was a milestone of creative brilliance, from its incredible casting, Al Pacino, Marlon Brando, James Caan, Talia Shire, Robert Duvall, John Cazale, to its brilliant writing, to its intense juxtaposition, which is my personal ele favorite element of the movie. It is the model of what many films aspire to be. For those who aren't indulging in film nerdery, the movie isn't about an Italian crime family in a 10-year period spanning the post-World War II era United States. It's also incredibly long. So long, in fact, that in part two, there is literally a scene in the middle of the movie that calls for an intermission. We had it on VHS tape, I think, at the time, and it was, I think you can still buy it on the DVD, where it literally says, I think, like, intermission, like, please stop and go spare your, spare your eyes and, you know, drink fluids and all this other, other stuff that happens in the middle of there. So, apparently they used to do that back in the Middle Ages. But it's not just a crime film. At its core, I would argue that The Godfather is about one predominant theme, manhood. Imagine a coming-of-age drama like The Breakfast Club, only with domestic violence and guns and pasta and some subpar special effects. But hey, for 1972, it's a damn miracle that all that shit was even allowed in a film back then. So, okay, it's not, it's not The Breakfast Club, but when you break it down, it actually is. It follows the story of Michael Corleone, a.k.a. Al Pacino, as he rises from a young war veteran in his 20s to become the head of the Corleone crime family run by his father Vito, which is Marlon Brando. As we, seen throughout the, as we see throughout the film, Vito favors Michael over his other children Connie, Fredo, and Sonny. He wants him to be a politician, to run for Senate, or become the governor of New York. He doesn't want the life of crime for Michael. He's too good for that, according to Vito. But... Throughout the events that transpire during the film, Michael is split between a crossroads. He can live the honest, 
question mark there, life of a public servant, or he can join the family business defined by death, pain, and suffering. He chooses the latter, and unsurprisingly, his life is soon defined by death, pain, and suffering. But, but why? Why did he choose that life? Michael could have had any life that he'd chosen to live. The world was quite literally his oyster. Yet, he still chose that path that led him to his own destruction. And I believe that the answer came down to one thing. A false sense of manhood. So, I think it was actually a couple podcasts ago. I've written about toxic masculinity before, and as we all know, especially from the last podcast, it's a giant load of BS. However, that does not mean that men don't have it all going on upstairs, and I can tell you from experience that we don't. My theory is that Michael had a false sense of manhood that was mostly derived from his father and his associates. You know, the dudes that shot people and took the cannoli where they were carrying instead of the gun they used to shoot him with. N not the greatest example of positive masculine behavior to reference. There's a reason why The Godfather is such a popular movie, especially around men. There's a reason why rappers like Jay-Z and Rick Ross name-drop it often in their music. It's because Vito Corleone was the man. He was the one with the power, the one who called the shots. He was the boss of bosses, the king of kings related to everything in New York's underworld. Yet, he was even, st he, even he was still torn by Michael's decision to join the family's family business, even though he'd mentored him throughout his transition to become the Don. Which brings us to the quote that I started off this article with, or this podcast with in this case. That quote is at the start of the greatest scene of the film, the final conversation that Michael and Vito have before the climax of the movie. Vito then goes to deliver my favorite quote of the entire film series, perfectly laying out the confusing dilemma. Quote, I never wanted this for you. I work my whole life, I don't apologize, to take care of my family, and I refuse to be a fool, dancing on the strings held by all those big shots. I don't apologize. That's my life. But I thought that when it was your time, that you would be able to want that you would be the one to hold the strings. Senator Corleone, Governor Corleone, something. Well, it wasn't enough time, Michael. End quote. What a loaded quote, a deceitful quote, depending on the context of the conversation. In the quote that I led the article with, he tells Michael that he has to be perfect, that he can't be careless. Now, in this one. He basically is telling Michael to never surrender, to never be a pawn in anyone's game, to play by your own rules. He resigns him to his fate as a ruthless crime overlord. There just wasn't enough time. This is perplexing. It takes men's minds and turns them into pretzels. Shouldn't we aspire to do good? Is Vito right or is he wrong? What type of man should we be? If you look carefully enough, you'll see instances like, instances like these all over pop culture. Let, let's take the Lord of the Rings, for example. In the third film of the trilogy, Return of the King, the armies of Sauron the Necromancer, giant warlord dude formed the rings, now is some weird eye of fire that sees everything. I'm dumbing this down as much as possible, okay? Um, are descending upon the last stronghold of man, Gondor. After failing to recapture the One Ring, the only thing that, that can defeat the eye of fire guy, Faramir, the son of the king of Gondor, Dethanor, returns to Gondor. Incredulous at Faramir's failure, Denethor sends his only remaining son on a death charge into the army of Sauron's orcs. This is, again, bizarre. I mean, fuck, even the orcs were confused by the looks of them. But Denethor thought that in some it was some bizarre way for him to either punish Faramir or have him regain his honor. Gandalf, mandatory white beard dude that's in every single movie this genre has ever produced, begs him not to go. But Faramir does anyway. When Faramir and his army get demolished, his father then proceeds to burn himself alive and throw him off a cliff out of guilt and sorrow. Probably could have used this article before he had done, he had done a heinous action like that. 
The same can be the said of the journey of Zuko on the hit television show Avatar The Last Airbender, my favorite television character ever. In a strange turn of events, when Zuko, the crown, prince of the, the crown prince of the Fire Nation, the villains of the show, showed sympathy for a battalion of troops that would be sacrificed in order to win a battle, his father, the Fire Lord, forced him to duel him in front of the whole nation, burning off the entire left side of his face. After, he sentenced his son to a lifetime of searching for the Avatar, the only being that could bring the world back into balance. The kicker? He hadn't seen, been seen for a hundred years. Confused yet? How about a dash of Me Too thrown in? The Me Too movement was one of the landmark social happenings of our time, when many women spoke out against various claims of sexual harassment. Most would argue that it needed to happen. All women deserve to be heard in these type of arguments. But what didn't need to happen was the emotional overcompensation. Men were demonized unfairly, with many being typecast with the, quote, toxic masculinity nonsense that occurred earlier. Throw in the toxic immaturity that men repeatedly emulate, and what the actual problem is, by the way, and we don't have a fucking clue what to think. Our minds have gone from pretzels to poorly stirred spaghetti. The internal war of men's minds has thrown my entire gender into a mental health tailspin. I know many men who struggle with this fight. It's tearing us apart. We don't know what to think. It's a, it's a problem. But why haven't we fixed it? We're men, right? We should be able to fix things. Meet, NASCAR, Margot Robbie, that sort of thing. A good place to start would be the excellent Brene Brown. Not many things in literature, especially the self-help genre, shake me to my core. One line in her book, Daring Greatly, did. In the book, she speaks of a scene where a man, his wife, and his three daughters were at her book signing. The man came up to her and asked her why she didn't talk about vulnerability for men. And she, for context, she then only talked about it in terms of women. Brown, understandably, said that she only dealt with women, which at the time was true. But the man then dropped this nuke. Quote, I like what you had to say, but my wife and daughters? They'd rather see me die on top of my white horse than to watch me fall off. You say you want us to be vulnerable and real, but come on, you, you, none of you guys can stand it. It makes you sick to see us like that. End quote. To Brown's credit, she acted on this quote, and now consults for both men and women. But the sad thing is, this man was 100% right, and a lot of men think it's hopeless. To further comment on Brown, she describes vulnerability for men in terms of a box. As soon as men move outside that box, even the slightest bit, the kibosh comes down on us like the wrath of 10,000 sons. We get bullied, mocked, and shamed. There's a reason why school shooters are overwhelmingly male. There's a reason why middle American white men are killing themselves in droves with a perfectly blended cocktail of opiates and suicides. There's a reason why the statistics that pertain to horrible instances like domestic violence and rape heavily swing towards men as the primary offenders. That reason is that, as a gender, our mental health fucking blows. We don't know how to, quote, be a man in a constructive way which, if you can't tell by the stats above, is a pretty fucking ginormous problem. America needs masculine men. We need men with compassion, fortitude, and toughness. But if we don't have healthy minds, we can't have any of the benefits that come with it. And that's what this podcast is going to be directed towards. So to analyze what we need to do to shift the stigma, we need to look at why mental health is such a hard topic for men to discuss, why vulnerability is the key to unlocking greater mental health, and what men and others can do to strengthen themselves and support others. So please hold your, yourself, or hold back from throwing yourself into a pit of fire and off a cliff, especially if you're a man struggling with mental health. So hang in there. We got you. Hopefully this podcast can help. So as we've discovered with big and complex issues, the mysterious beer virus and George Floyd race relations in America, we can't sweep them under the rug. They must be discussed and talked about. 
uncomfortable conversations must be had. But you see, that right there is the biggest problem of them all. Men hate talking about this shit. There's a reason why females in movies and TV shows resort to the why don't you talk to me and open up to me cliche. It's because men, in most cases, don't like to open up, but that's for the next section. The real question is why? Why do we suck at this? Well, in my opinion, it's for a variety of reasons. Coming from the Midwest, I think I can provide a fresh perspective from some of you who don't really know what it's like. So have you ever seen that 70s show, aka the funniest sitcom to ever air ever? If you haven't, watch it. If you have, I'd like to direct your attention to one character in particular, Red Foreman. Red Foreman, for all who are unaware, is the father of the main character of the show, Eric Foreman. Red is blunt, callous, disciplined, harsh, and tough. He's very difficult to deal with, almost rigid to a fault. He has a very concerning and odd fetish with putting foot, his foot up people's asses. He's meant to be a caricature of what a stereotypical post-60s father was supposed to be like. But I can also tell you that that caricature isn't very far off from what it's actually like to grow up in the Midwest. It's actually quite accurate from my experience. Any good comedy has some sort of truth wedged into it. As proof, reference this, act, this episode of the Actors' Roundtable from The Hollywood Reporter. In the most bizarre collection of actors who I never in any way thought I would see interact, Adam Sandler and Jamie Foxx talked about this exact phenomenon. For Sandler, he took his experience being an awkward Jewish kid with a strict dad and turned that into his main reference for comedy. For Fox, he took the experience of growing up as a poor black kid from Texas and turned that into material. It's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. Take things from our past that were harmful and or odd and turn them into something lighter. But there is always truth to that comedy. The same holds true for Red Foreman and others like him, more so than any other exaggeration I've seen, because I and so many others have lived it. My dad loved me. My dad loved me a lot. If I'm privileged in any way, it was that I was fortunate enough to have two parents that cared about me to the extent that they did. But my dad was tough. He wasn't like the other dads. He didn't go bro down with the others just to seem cool. He didn't sacrifice time with his family or his work because he knew he needed to protect and provide. He was deliberately tough on me because I knew I could take it and made me fit the mold that he wanted because he knew that it was the mold that worked. He was often emotionally distant and was often hard to talk about in conversations that pertain to these type of things. I'm almost the exact opposite of him in that respect. I have a blog, if you weren't aware, and now a podcast, so fuck you. This is the first reason I want to highlight the societal stereotypes of masculinity. I do want to state, however, that I do not blame my dad for any of the problems that I have encountered because they are my problems and I should only be the one to bear responsibility of fixing them. I should also note that it's not, my, just, it's, not, it's not that my dad and many other men like him are inherently doing anything wrong. They're not because it's a slippery slope, and let me explain that even further. A lot has been said of society in regards to role of gender recently, more prominently among women. Women, up till very recently, were traditionally housewives who took care of the house and raised the children. It was a hard job. But women eventually got to a place where they decided that they might want more than that, culminating in the area of 1960s, 70s, with the earliest rises of modern feminism. You know, before the, all the crazy-ass motherfuckers hijacked it and started pouring rainbow milk on themselves at Bernie Sanders rallies. There was nothing wrong with the premise of this movement at all. If a woman is capable of doing a job, she should absolutely have the opportunity to potentially do that job. Whether or not she gets it is irrelevant, being if the process is fair. What matters is the opportunity. This led to an enormous amount of women entering and staying in the corporate world longer and advancing further. They've come a long way. Men also have gender roles. Men were traditionally the breadwinners of the family, the ones who went out, worked, and brought home a check every two weeks or so to buy food and pay the mortgage. That was a hard job also. 
But the problem is, once women's roles started to change, men were caught like deer in headlights. We simply didn't know what to do. After the 1960s and 70s, due to a wide-ranging amount of issues, the deconstruction of unions and NAFTA being the few of the prominent ones, men began to experience an incredible disruption, most notably a loss of jobs and opportunities to get those jobs. This particularly happened in areas such as the Midwest, the Plains, and the South, which were built on factory jobs and various types of unionized pay. Ever been to Detroit in the last 10 years? Thankfully, it's getting better, but it still ain't great. Cleveland? Not much better than the getting better. Don't believe the Instagram posts about breweries and Indians games. We still have a long way to go. This boils down to the first reason. Men really haven't found a way to adapt like women have. We've stayed relatively rigid, at least culturally, in a world that is now defined by incredibly dynamic change. We haven't evolved our masculinity like women have evolved their femininity. Do most women still cling to traditional feminine values such as beauty, cultivation of family, and socialization? You better believe they do, as they should. But they found a way to evolve. Which leads me to my second point. Society hasn't really given men that much of a chance. Now, before you trolls go off on me victimizing myself, let me explain. Think of the great changes in society the last 50 years. If you had to identify a single but broad trend, what would it be? I'll tell you what mine is. The embracing of a more socially relaxed society. In some cases, it's been great. The civil rights movement and the legalization of homosexual marriage are great examples of this. But in other cases, it's harmed people. And I would argue that that group is specifically men. Before the last 50 years happened, the typical, quote, masculine man approach was typical. Think Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Big smiles, dominant physical presence, commanding presence, the ability to speak freely, the freedom to crack a potentially heinous joke, the encouragement to fight, oftentimes physically, if you need to get your aggression out or if someone seriously wrongs you, and cigarettes, lots and lots of cigarettes. But over the, last course of the, or the course of the last 50 years, those things have been slowly dismantled, except for the big smiles, I guess those still exist, and it's definitely a good thing that we're smoking an incredibly amount less than we once were. When most people argue, utter the phrase, the war on masculinity, this is what they mean. Don't get triggered, detach, and listen. Physical dominance is now frowned upon as, quote, aggressive. The cocktail of a commanding presence and the ability to speak freely is now liberally demonized as, quote, mansplaining. Everyone gets, everyone gets offended by everything. Fighting is actually not only discouraged, it's punished. I remember a vivid story back when I was in middle school. If you didn't know me, I went through the worst awkward phase in recorded history. Well, at least post-Instagram. It was bad, man. Oftentimes, I felt left out or bullied. My dad had been in several fights growing up. My grandpa verbally emasculated his neighbor in front of his wife when he threatened to hit him over the head with a two-by-four. It was important that they taught me how to defend myself. We would do the typical dad-son thing, teach me how to put my hands up, not punch your thumb and tucked inside your fist, throw a couple blows to the heavy bag downstairs, all that jazz. There were times where I wanted to get physical with some kids. There were times when I had enough where I wanted to defend myself and tell them I didn't want to take their shit anymore if they didn't mean it or insulted me. But I couldn't. The reason why is that, at least in my district, the person who defended themselves still got the same punishment as the person who was the aggressor. And this was a minimum five days suspension, not small potatoes for a 13-year-old goody two-shoes. We were disarmed even before we had the chance to defend ourselves. All of these reasons point to one thing. A collective destruction of the male identity. Not only did we evolve did we not evolve, but from a lot of angles, it was almost like we were encouraged not to. Not only could we not move forward, but now a lot of people were telling us we couldn't even inhabit our roles as men anymore. How, how, how fucked is that? When I talk about the mental, health, the mental health tailspin, 
This is the part of the movie where the engines cut out in midair. The pilots freeze. They don't know what to do. All the passengers on the plane are stuck in a panic. They are completely at the mercy of whatever result is left on the table. That result is one of two things. A crash or extremes. A crash is what we're seeing currently. Men have no identity and they don't know what to do. They sit on their couches, do a whole fuck ton of drugs, masturbation, and nothing else. That's usually the best thing that happens to you when you get to a point this bad. Just listen to Longview by Green Day. You'll see exactly what I mean. Extremes, however, are worse. I'm not talking about saving the plane like Denzel Washington popping his absolutely iconic we're gonna roll it, flipping the plane upside down and managing to save most of the people on board. That, my friends, is fucking awesome. God, do I love that movie and Denzel Washington. My dad has watched him kill people with a nail gun more times than I could count. But no, what I'm talking about is trying to be a dumbass thinking you're going to save the plane, do something rash and or stupid, and killing everybody in a bloody and horrific mess born out of your own irrational stupidity. Maybe a unicorn will come crawling out of your ass. I don't know. This is the whole doing heroin thing I was referencing earlier. The suicide thing. The school shooting thing. The mass stabbing thing. The overall acts of radical violence thing. <clears throat> These men have a lot of psychological problems. I'm not arguing against that. What I'm arguing for, however, is that they've lost their outlet on how to act as a man. When people lose hope, they either can stay in that hopelessness or try to jolt themselves out of it. Unfortunately, too many people succumb to absolutes and extremes, leaving them with only absolute and extreme consequences to face when they get done with this activity. Usually, it ends the crash. It's only a matter of how you decide you want to crash your plane. That phenomenon acts as our third reason why mental health for men is deteriorating, and why it's become so hard to talk about. Manhood has gone into a horrific transition from non-evolving to stagnant and now into decline. I think a good proof for this lies in evolutionary biology. Like I've argued before, we're not much more primal than we're all much more primal rather than we're willing to admit. We're not that much different from apes, mostly because apes don't spear people over Twitter in mob-esque fashion. Male and female attraction, biologically, isn't really that hard to figure out. For the longest time, women were attracted to males because of the overall dominance and protectiveness and men were attracted to women who were healthy and of breeding age. It explains why women generally liked men who were mature and stable and potentially have lots of money and social status. It shows overall dominance and protectiveness. It also explains why straight men will fuck anything with a vagina who is between the ages of 18 and 45. But the question remains, why did men aspire to be dominant and protective? Well, for the longest time they had to. There were goddamn saber-toothed tigers back then, dog, lions, tigers, and bears and all that. People killed each other daily, disease ran rampant, food was scarce, as was fresh water. This was Darwinism at its finest. So, what exactly happened? Why can't men just fall back on that anymore and re retain their identity that way? Well, listener, because of one thing. Technology. There's the th there are these things called supermarkets now. Vaccines, industrialization, modern medicine, computers, Starbucks. Much of the problems that, fall on men or that fell on men's shoulders and many of the things that men found a niche in no longer exist. They've been replaced, and rightly so for the most part, by things that can alleviate those problems. To quote Mark Manson, society has simply found a better set of problems. The problem with this, though, is that we don't know how to adapt to those better sets of problems. So we do one of two things. We lose hope or we devolve. We either shoot up schools or we sit at home and jerk off five times a day. Don't try this at home, kids. Well, maybe the second one, I guess. Just make sure you lose, use lotion first. You also must be asking yourself, if society has evolved that much, why aren't women feeling the same burden? The answer to that is twofold. The first one is simply the first point I made in this section. Women, especially over the last 50 years, have been more empowered, not disempowered, in terms of their identity as women. 
men have been traditionally disempowered in terms of their identity, even though it's been subtle and no one talks about it. The second, and potentially more shallow, reason is that women have good old evolutionary biology to fall back on. Even though we don't write on walls their own shit anymore, our methods of attraction have still stayed remarkably similar. If you have female reproductive organs, can have a kid, and can keep yourself healthy, you'll probably still be alright in the long run. You still have your identity, at least in terms of evolutionary biology. Well, fuck, what do we do now? Men are in a seemingly endless identity pit of nothingness. The world is ending. The gender will cease to exist. will spontaneously combust and fade into oblivion like the three main villains of the end of the late Raiders of the Lost Ark. Or, I know, exaggeration here, we won't. At least the whole spontaneous combustion thing probably won't happen. Might be cool to try, at least, you know, kind of like crack. So, hint, you should not do crack or bath salts, especially not bath salts. The key to getting out of the seemingly endless pit of nothingness is something that men are equally shitty about other than taking care of our mental well-being. It's a thing that Brene Brown alluded to. Vulnerability. Ick. Vulnerability. I hate that word. Every man who has ever existed at some point in their existence, ever, at at least one point. However, we cannot run from vulnerability. It is a key to facing our problems. And I think the main problem that men have with dealing with our problems is, this sense, is the sense of the word itself. We think it's girly or not manly or weak. It makes us feel like pussies. Until we see what that word actually means. According to the dictionary, the definition for vulnerability is, quote, capable of being physically or emotionally wounded, end quote. That's it. Nothing to do with being girly. Nothing to do with gender at all, actually. It's simply a word, a tool to be wielded in constructive or unconstructive contexts. It's the key to mental fortitude. I'll give you three reasons to prove that this is true. The first is that when we are vulnerable, we are, shipped, we are stripped down to our rock bottom of shame. The rock bottom of shame, if you remember correctly, or if you're hearing this for the first time, if you're a new listener or reader, is when you get hit with a Mike Tyson-esque uppercut by shame due to, quote, stepping out of your lane. For men, this happens any time where we take a serious step out of the typical masculine way society sees us doing things, which, as we looked at in the previous section, is complete horseshit. We don't really have an identity as a gender anymore, according to society, so who's to tell us what the fuck is even right anymore? Vulnerability is hard. It's right there in the definition. No one likes being cap capable of being physically or emotionally wounded. However, I would say that context applies more to men. I think there's a reason embedded deep within our lizard brains that enables women to be more open about expressing their emotions. It has to do, once again, with my friend evolutionary biology. Men, for an incredibly long period of time, couldn't be vulnerable in order to survive. We had to be brutish, ironclad, club-carrying badasses. This intense conditioning to this dynamic forces us to be uncomfortable with being vulnerable. Remember, we all fear we don't understand. This is why the rock bottom of shame is so difficult for men to come to terms with, and why it's so hard for us to try to be vulnerable in the first place. As a gender, we don't really know what to do when something sucker punches us so bad in that place that's so uncomfortable. We seize up. In other words, you don't become Denzel Washington. I think that has a reason to do with the catastrophic effects of the male mental health stagnation that I mentioned earlier. So, to avoid that fear of the unknown and stagnation, we simply re refuse to go there. We refuse to be pulled in by the rock bottom of shame. But that's where we need to live if we want to build fortitude and rebuild the male identity back into mental health high status. Not live there forever, of course, that would be pretty horrifying. But we do need to go there once in a while. The plane needs to crash. We need to see what operations and procedures work and which ones don't. But the only way we can see if they even work in the first place is by attempting to fly the damn plane. 
we can't let it sit on the tarmac. We need to be forced to evaluate and given the choice whether we want to escape it or not. If we decide to, that's when the fortitude starts to build. That's when we make it through the fire and begin to prosper. The second reason that vulnerability is the key to mental fortitude is that it forces us to confront our real problems and tell our real stories, not the problems we imagine in our head which influence the skewed stories we'll tell ourselves due to the causality. I've talked about this before, but let this act as a refresher. I first discovered the whole better problems concept from Mark Manson, my favorite thought leader in the world today. If his life was an essay, this would be his thesis. Shit, he cr created the whole negative self-help industry based on this principle. Say you're a dude and you're pissed because of the pics you've been posting on Instagram haven't been doing numbers to the ladies lately. So, being the invulnerable prick you are, you start to hate women. They're all now shallow, according to the invulnerable prick. Bitches, even. Gasp. But here's a better question. Are these women that you follow really the problem, or are you really the problem? Hint, it's the second one. It's unlikely that you're being brutally honest with yourself about your problems. About your real problem. Not the one that people born in, people in society, specifically our ruling class, peddle to you to make yourself feel better about yourself. Suck it up and kick yourself in the teeth. Odds are, the reason that you aren't doing numbers to the ladies on IG, a, horif a horrific metric to use as a measuring stick with females, by the way, is that you don't respect yourself. You're not exuding the whole dominance and protectiveness thing that an evolutionary biology tells you to do. There are several things this could point to. You could be fat and unhealthy. You could walk with poor posture. You could dress like a slob. You could have poor personal hygiene and smell like ass all the time. You could not be trying your best to excel in school or the workplace. You could eat like shit. You could not be putting in a lot of effort to invest into skills to, hmm, actually talk to those women. Now that might sound harsh and good. It's supposed to. Mindless positivity isn't positivity at all. It's avoidance. Jen Sincero has made millions of dollars off it, the con artist. But if we're not invulnerable pricks, we might see the problem. You might start hitting the gym. You might walk with your shoulders back and your head straight. You might invest some money in a couple of nicer outfits. You might buy a toothbrush, mouthwash if you're feeling fancy. You might try harder at work or in school. You might start eating a, more, a few more green leafy, leafy vegetables. You might suck it up and buy a dating course from a reputable source, of course, and fix your shit with actual interactions with actual women. But none of this is possible unless we nut up and get vulnerable and uncomfortable until we hit our rock bottom of shame. When we get vulnerable and start to get our houses in order, we build that mental fortitude immensely because we know that our problems are being addressed. But how exactly do we get our houses in order? And that's the third reason. We can't build our newfound vulnerability and get our houses in order and start to build up our mental fortitude without a strong foundation. And that foundation is your values. Because, let's face it, if you come back from your vulnerability journey and then just build yourself up on the shame shitty-ass values, you'll probably end up crashing the damn plane again. You'll never get to be Denzel. And we all want to be like Denzel. This is the most important part. This is where you begin to restructure your mental health as a man in order to put yourself in a better place. I've talked about values before, and the one constant thing is, I don't give a flying fuck what they are, as long as they aren't harm harming or infringing on anyone else directly. That's what makes America and its people great. We can be different. Different is cool. But when we discover our values... There is one other thing that I would suggest. Don't overdo it. The book I'm currently reading, or I was currently reading at the time, is Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport. It's fantastic. And in the book, Newport's main idea is that our relationships with technology has become incre incredibly unhealthy and that we need to adopt a minimal minimalist perspectives that will help enhance both our overall lives and our relationships with technology. The reason that the minimalist Newport idea holds water 
is that the whole overdoing it thing is exactly what got us into this mess in the first place. Overdoing can lead to absolutism if left unchecked. Just ask Darth Vader and the children he slaughtered. Oh wait, you can't. It's a movie and they're all dead anyways. But if you show restraint, if you question yourself and tread lightly, maybe men can get somewhere. Maybe we can roll the plane. Maybe we can check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. Ice Cube voice. So we have our vulnerability and our values. But now comes the time to strengthen them and fully rebuild our mental health. And that comes next. Values and vulnerability are great things to possess. But like most anything that's worth owning, they need upkeep. They need to be constantly tested and worked out, just like your car and your muscles. You must put your values and vulnerability under pressure and strain in order to make sure that they can bear the weight of your life. If they can't, you need to throw them out and replace them with something more fortified. But remember, this isn't strengthening these things for anyone. This is for all the dudes in the room. There are ways that men specifically need to work on their mental health in order to provide that fortitude. The reason is that we are cognitively wired different from females, as we've talked about. So, naturally, we need to tailor our dynamic of mental health strengthening towards things that more efficiently work for the male gender. Take working out, for example. The, male, the reason that men and women, for the most part, do different workouts and different levels of strain and weight is because they are fundamentally different at the core of their physiology. Our minds are no different. And the first way I would suggest going about creating your personal base of fortitude would be to start on a very bare-bones level. Establishing empathic listening and psychological safety with those closest to you. And I'm not talking about anything like safe spaces or anything of the sort. Those are for mentally weak people. They're fragile. You're not. You don't need them and don't think that you do. The thing with this first step that makes it different from a safe space is that you're not going here to cower. You're establishing empathic listening and psychological safety in order to form a conduit towards tough conversations and topics with people that matter the most to you, not away from them. These are not meant for you to hide. These are meant for you to be heard. But some of you may be wondering what the fuck these terms even mean. Let me explain by starting off with the first one. The term empathic listening has many roads to its genesis, and I'm sure it's been a, it has handfuls of different names. The reason why I chose this one was because of how it was articulated and explained. The man who did the articulating and explaining was Stephen Covey, or Stephen Covey, rather, an author and educator best known for his legendary book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. According to Covey, the definition of empathic listening is, quote, Reflecting what a person feels and says in your own words to their satisfaction so they feel listened to and understand, end quote. The reason why I believe that Covey's definition holds more than most is because of its relation to its thesis of the seven habits, specifically habit five. Habit five is seek first to understand, then to be understood. Think about that for a second. Imagine how much more productive your, con your conflicts and mental health could be if you took this device to heart. If you reflect on what a person you trust is feeling and make your best effort to listen to them without initial judgment and then help to guide them towards a solution, you simultaneously empower and build up trust with that individual. And I believe that this is something that men as a whole could get a lot better at. Men, from my experience, are fixers. We want to go into a problem we're having either with another person or ourselves and automatically seek a solution. I believe that this approach is flawed, especially when it's referred to in relation to Covey's definition. But the thing is that it's always, it isn't always as simple as that, especially when we're dealing with all the bullshit going on between our ears. We need to have a base of comfort to, with seeking to both understand and be understood, and that's where psychological safety comes in. Psychological safety was one of the more interesting topics I covered when I went through school. Developed by Boston University academic William Kahn, the definition reads, quote, 
being able to show and employ oneself without the fear of negative consequences of self-image, status, or career. As a guy with a fair amount of controversial opinions, this definition was a giant breath of fresh air to me. Far too few people practice it, which is a shame. The argument that Khan makes with that definition is that no one should be afraid to express themselves because of fear of something detrimental happening to anything they work to attain. June, is, June was Pride Month, or is, is Pride Month, rather. That's one of the few big milestones that exemplifies this definition. However, there are several outside forces that have negatively impacted the growth of psychological safety. Cancel culture, our shit-storm political climate, the mob, social media algorithms, insane people, the popular Reddit threads, and some meth over Craigslist. Our ability to hear one another has been hit over the head with a crowbar. However, with the rise in new feminism, the Me Too movement, and other factors, we have seen a shift that, in my opinion, has enabled women to express themselves more freely than men, at least recently. Due to a lack of our own initiative to empathic listening and the lack of outside pressure that has stunted the growth of psychological safety, a lot of men have not created a platform in which they feel they can adequately express their issues. This is the first step into taking our mental health back into our own hands. However, we still must tread lightly. This must be planned out to maximize effectiveness. So, my suggested solution is this. Get out a piece of paper, go through your contacts on your phone, and create a list of no more than 20 people, regardless of gender, that you feel are closest with and that genuinely care about your well-being, not people that you sell meth to over that sell you meth over Craigslist. After that list is done, call every single one of them. Embrace your newfound values and vulnerability. The reason you both need to embrace these two things is because in order to reach a place where both empathic listening and psychological safety are enabled, you must clutch those two things to as, clo as close to you as possible. Only through being completely honest with yourself and the other person can you reach a common ground. Only then can you establish nuance. Once you make the call, simply tell them that you wish to establish empathic listening and psychological safety. Plagiarize the fuck out of this post. I don't give a shit. Just communicate that you want to be able to have that person trust you with these two very important things. If they're as real as they think you are, they'll, or you think they are, they will emphasize with you, empathize with you, and not have a problem doing this. If they aren't, drop them. Don't waste your time. So, the second step would then be at what happens after. Talk. However, this is one I am going to discriminate a little bit, so sorry, ladies. I want you to talk to other men. I want to be clear. I am not against creating empathic listening and psychological safety with women. The majority of my friends are women. They're all great listeners. They're incredibly em empathetic. Use them to help you. But there is one problem with them that is a significant barrier to improving your mental health holistically. They don't have Y chromosomes. For however great women are, hint, they are for the most part quite great, they simply cannot know what it is like to be a man. The only people that do are, wait for it, other men. There are certain things that we can only discuss with our boys, and not the shallow shit like lifted trucks and fucking girls and coked out club bathrooms like the dude who attempted to port Tony Montana's sister in Scarface. You don't want to be that guy anyways. No. I'm talking about the shit that really matters. The responsibility of being a good husband and father. The struggles of knowing where to take stances with your girlfriend, where you should and should not butt into a conversation, how to constructively have conflict with your partner, what to do when you feel shut out from getting help by society's outside pushing your masculinity, when people call you toxic just for being a man. These are deep topics, and they hurt. Yeah, whoever said the whole sticks and stones bullshit needs to go shove a good-sized stick and stone up their ass. Of course words hurt. They can be pretty fucking painful at times. But pain needs to be discussed and filtered. It can't fester. Like any toxic fungus, it will multiply and grow if not attended to appropriately. 
This is what establishing empathic listening and psychological safety with other men whom you trust will prevent. Air out your dirty laundry. Let other men come in and create avenues to help you. Also note that sexual orientation has nothing to do with this at all. And I don't give a, f I don't give a fuck if you're gay or straight. The definition for masculinity doesn't and shouldn't change. At the end of the day, you're still a man. You still have shit going on attempting to seize the real estate in your head. Don't let some bullshit that people tell you matters to you. Or that people tell you that matters matter to you. Get help. You're entitled to it if you seek it in the proper fashion and do the right things along the way. A great way to do this is something that I did when I was back in college. A good friend of mine is a very powerful voice of young people within the area. He's incredibly likable and has great intentions. So he took things into his own hands and started a mental health group that meets twice a month, except during the beer virus, where young people can come and talk about a, a topic that he and his co-founder, also a great guy, came up with. It was at this group where I discovered how incredibly soothing it was to be in a space where empathic listening and psychological safety were actually practiced. These people were grown-ups. A much overdue change from the college scene, I was easily the youngest person there. They talked about real shit and they didn't hold anything back. Even though it was co-ed, nothing wrong with that, I came away amazed at the strength and vulnerability that these individuals showed. I felt like a weight got lifted off my shoulders every time I left. So I think a good action step is to take here would be to do this with your boys. Once you've created your base of empathic listening and psychological safety, do yourself a favor and level with one another. Help each other out. Be aware and open. Do your part in improving the issue of the male identity. Reclaim the male identity. The third step to reclaiming the male identity is on the personal level. The way I would suggest it, suggest it would be a term that I like to call constructive aggression. The term may seem to be paradoxical, but I promise you that it's not. It's actually an incredibly cool and deep concept that I came across while watching an interview with a guy who probably knows more on the subject than anyone else in the world. The clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson has been interviewed many times in Joe Rogan's podcast. On a second go-round, Peterson broached a question by Rogan about masculinity by channeling his inner psychological hero, Carl Jung. Carl Jung was a Swiss psychologist who invented analytical psychology and was instrumental in the creation of psychological archetypes, most familiar to most of you as the Myers-Briggs assessment. He was also an indirect student of perhaps the most legendary thought leader of the 19th century, Friedrich Nietzsche, his psychological hero. Jung was described as Peterson as the deepest psychological mind he had seen from his extensive studies, actually describing Jung as, quote, terrifying when explaining his the depths of his analysis. Back to the interview. Peterson began to draw from Jung and stated that the only pathway, according to Jung, to human completion was through something that he called, quote, the embodiment of the monster. According to Jung, who called this idea the Jungian shadow, he did not believe that you could realize your capacity for good until you realized your capacity for evil and not only to understand that evil, but to face it and bring it under control before it eventually corrupts you in the same fashion. Getting the whole terrifying thing yet, it certainly shook me. But Peterson didn't stop there. He quoted Jung again, saying that, quote, the roots of the shadow go all the way down to hell. According to Peterson, there's no morality in being a good person without understanding that you can be a bad person. A person who is naive of their ability to do bad cannot truly leave a lasting mark on the world because they aren't aware of their full capacity to making a lasting impact on anything. If you really start to understand who you are, you can understand the worst of people. The Nazis, the Khmer Rouge, murderers, rapists, human traffickers. Quote, it's a horrible thing to realize you're human and what being a human means. End quote, said Peterson. He then referenced the Bible. Humanity is on a spectrum according to Peterson. Christ to Satan. You can fall anywhere along these two extremes, either one step below Christ or one step above Satan. 
if you can completely ignore the other side of what you can become on that spectrum, it could sneak up on you. It could consume you. Because at the end of the day, the Nazis, the Khmer Rouge, murderers, rapists, and human traffickers have one incredibly scary thing in common with every single person reading or listening to this post or podcast. They're all human. We all have the capacity to do bad things. Horrible things. But only those who are cognizant of that and are aware of their own potential for horror can truly become a monster to fight it. To channel it into putting our best foot forward into every possible aspect of our life to be the best person we can be for ourselves and society. To quote Matthew 5 verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. I'll let you sit with that for a minute. It's pretty intense shit, but it's so true. It's so unbelievably true, especially for men. Remember evolutionary biology. Most of the world's atrocities were committed with men at the helm. For most of our existence, we've had to slaughter one another to ensure our own survival. But then the modern times happened. Thank fucking God the modern times happened. We've lost the necessity to be aggressive for survival's sake, but we still need it. We still need to embody that monster. We still need to claim that our side of our, our that side of our mind before it claims us. We can still do horrible things. We can still create destruction. The only way to fight it is to realize the depths of our mental capacity, conquer our mental health, and then embody the monster. Now, I'm obviously not telling men to embody the Khmer Rouge and the Nazis. I'm simply telling the men to embrace that monster in a constructive way. Constructive aggression. Take that out in the most optimistic way possible to help yourself in the world. There's a reason why... Re Peterson called Rogan a monster. He goes out and he fucking gets it. He's the biggest independent media personality in the world because of it. So, for the third step for men after establishing empathic listening, psychological safety, and a solid outlet to express them, is to take your life and unleash the monster on it. Show no mercy. Embrace that part of masculinity. Go out and get shit done in a good fashion for yourself and your surroundings. Make the world better. Make yourself better. Go work out really hard. Punch stuff. Do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Shoot guns. Throw axes. Lift weights. Write and journal your thoughts and expressions. Be a listening ear for someone. Go. Step. B. For men, our mental well-being has been under siege. As far as I can see, it will get worse until it gets better. Unless we make it better. Take the narrative into your own hands. Don't let anyone dictate what you are from what you aren't. Health is wealth, and the mind always rules over the body. It's the most important part of who we are. Take care of it. Establish empathic listening and psychological safety. Encourage and talk about it amongst your fellow men. Embody the monster. Don't apologize for being a man and being masculine. It's dangerous and it's regressive. The world needs you. It needs strong men. It needs good men. Men who know their capacity for impacting the world and unleashing their power. Run to it. Show it off to the world. Don't feel bad about it if you're doing it in the right way. Because, in the end, the Don was right. Men can't afford to be careless. We have to be intentional about being a man. And I encourage you to follow that intent. Just don't chain murder fellow men in elevators in the streets of New York City in the process. So... That's my post, guys. I feel really strongly about this topic. I hope a lot of men out there who are feeling like they are either less than or they're feeling bad about themselves, they're having struggles, hang in there, do what needs to be done. Don't be ashamed about your masculinity or being a man. And I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening.
open the day, own your mind. Own the day, open your mind. Wow, I just butchered that. <laughs> Bye, guys. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?